0: You know, there's a comedian, his name is Stephen Wright, and he asks some very um, kind of silly questions, I think. uh, Kind of why questions. For example, he asks, um, have you ever wondered why people ask if it is walking distance? Isn't everywhere walking distance if you have the time? Do hermits experience peer pressure? If you get an existential map, this is for philosophy majors here. If you get an existential map, will you have, you are here written all over it? He says, I installed a skylight in my apartment. The people who live above me are furious. What's the big deal? Don't you think it's wrong that only one company makes the game, Monopoly. He asks just inane questions like, if you work at a fire hydrant factory, that, does that mean that you can't park anywhere near the place? Or this one, if you try to daydream, what happens if your mind begins to wander? Um, those are kind of silly questions, and sometimes, you know, kids ask those kind of questions, don't they? There's a whole website, I, I realized as I was preparing this message this week. There's a number of them that are built to answer the why questions that kids somewhere around three years of age start asking. You know, you know how that goes. They they say, you know, you say, I want you to, to clean your room or do something like that. And they'll say, why? And you'll say, because. And they'll say, because why? Anybody been down this road? Oh, yeah. And you say, because I said so. But why do you say so? Because it's right. But who says it's right? And on and on the trail goes. You see. It's very interesting as we look at this passage of Scripture, and we come to this point in the, the letter that was written to Titus. If you open your Bibles, if you have it, if not, we have these Scriptures that will be um, above for you to see. In Titus chapter 3, verse 3, he comes to this point, and he has been giving directives and commands. He's been telling people some things that they're supposed to do. He says, Be kind. He says, Be temperate. He says, Be respectful. Be self controlled. Be pure. Don't steal. Live upright, live godly lives. Then as you get to verse 1, he says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Which is said nine times in just these two little pages, these three chapters, nine times Paul says, basically be good in fact all these directives that he has here he says slander no one be peaceable, considerate show true humility toward all men in verses one and two of chapter three there are all these commands and directives that have happened in chapter two all the way up to chapter three verse one and two can basically be summed up by saying this do good be good and from that goodness allow it to flow from you the goodness of god Well, Paul, at this point, I think, is anticipating some questions. He's anticipating a why question. See, many of the other passages or the letters that Paul writes to churches, he spends the first half of every letter sharing the basis for all the things he's going to tell them to do. He basically gives theology. Here's an understanding of who God is and what he's done and, and what he has done in your life and how that all affects you, and now here's how you live. Well, it's really interesting. He doesn't need to do this to Titus. Titus is a young preacher who has been told and encouraged by Paul. He, was, he came to this island of Crete where the, uh, of a number of followers of Jesus had had begun to meet and to settle in different parts of this island. And Titus is coming there to help them to understand what it means to live like Jesus. Because in that way, in that place, in that time, they were not necessarily distinguishing themselves in any way from anybody else around them. And so he basically gives them these commands and he says to Tim Titus, who doesn't need all the background, doesn't need all the theology, doesn't need all the preparation. He basically begins in Titus chapter one and two and says, here's what you need to do. And then I think what happens in chapter three, he kind of realizes, you know, I didn't set any of this up ahead of time. So maybe I need to do this for Titus's sake. To anticipate some of the questions that he's going to have. The why questions. Such as when someone says, why be good and kind to my coworker when they've intentionally gossiped about me or they've harmed me? When someone says to him, well, why should I be good and why should I honor the politician who's running for office that I vehemently disagree with? Or why help my neighbor who lets his dog run all over my yard and through my garden? Um, That's what my neighbor asked me. Why should I be good to you when my dog was running all through his yard garden? That's no lie. Anyway, um, we now have an electric fence and I've done good. Anyway, why be loving and good to your spouse whom you have shown your love and your goodness to and they neglect your need or they hurt you? These are the kind of questions that Paul was anticipating, and so at this point as he's writing, I think he begins to say, Titus, I kinda sense what's going to be coming. And so in verse three of chapter three, he with the little Greek word, the word gar in the Greek, which means for, your new and I uh, new and I i it yet new international versions basically say at one time. The, the word is for you were once this way. And this little word for is a connective to those preceding verses of chapters of 3, 1, and 2. And Paul isn't merely saying because, like parents say. He's giving directives, I believe, on some solid reasons as we look at 3, verse four, five, six, seven, 5, 6, 7, and 8. To anyone wondering, why should I be good to this person who's been such a jerk to me? When I think about the way they've treated me, why... They don't even deserve the slightest bit of kindness. I think Paul's answer is pretty simple. I think he would say, you're right. You're absolutely right. They don't deserve your goodness. But then again, no one deserves grace. You don't. I don't. None of us. That's exactly the point. So nine times he says, be good. And now he explains some reasons why. And he invites us, in a sense, to take a stroll down memory lane. And he helps us to remember what we were like. He says, I want you to have a good memory, an honest recall of your past life. Verse 3. Look at verse 3. He says, at one time, or four, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. I want you to recall to have a memory about what you were once like when you weren't so good. He goes, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Can you honestly recall your past life? I want you to think of it this way. How would you fill in these blanks? Let's start it again. At one time, I, too, was foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Could you say that? Now I want you to continue with this. I lived in and I want you to fill in the blank. Paul says I live, you know, malice, envy, hating and hating one another. But let's do it this way. I lived in and start thinking back. What you lived in. Maybe anger. Rage. Self-pity. Anybody lived in self-pity? Gossip. Bitterness. Anybody here hold grudges or held grudges? Lust? Envy? Remember when you lied? How about white lies? You know, for some of us, we don't have to remember back too far, do we? May have been this morning on the drive here. May have been yesterday. It's really interesting, though. He says, I want you to remember way back. Before you had any awareness of this kind of stuff that had a hold of your life. When you were enslaved by, imprisoned by it. When you were basically in a place where you didn't really care, so you disobeyed. And lying was kind of like your mother tongue. Self-pity was something you just liked to live in. Gossip just came easy. He said there was a time you were foolish and disobedient. And deceived and enslaved. He said, just remember back to that time. And a lot of us go, well, you don't even really have to remember. I still do some of those things today. I love how honest the early church was, which just goes to show how healthy I think it was and how much more capable its it was of receiving the love and grace and goodness of God. Do you know that the more honest you are and the more honest you can be in a group, the more you can be truly known and the more you can be greatly loved. I mean, when you hide things in and you you live a life that's not honest, that's not authentic, and I mean appropriate in the right circles, when you hide that stuff in, then people don't know you and they can't love you. One of the great problems of the church, so often what happens in the church, is they at one time lived in such a way they felt enslaved, and and then eventually they forget that, they become self-righteous, and they begin to hide that. And everyone comes here dressed up, looking nice. And if you look at the person next to you, you kind of go, they don't have any problems. They don't do the lying, the white lying, the lusting, and the envy. Right? Wrong. Now, the early church was so honest about it. The early church understood this idea that, that if I know your deepest shame and still love you, you will know love at a very deep level. The first leaders and followers of Christ were honest and authentic. And Paul would often remind them and others about how things were in order to keep them humble. Because he knew that a good memory kept them humble and attached to what they once were so that they could give that same kind of patience and kindness and love, and everything else needed to the coworker neighbor, spouse, child, grandparent that you once received. I love how the first leaders and followers of Christ were so authentically open. Peter openly shared his denial of christ thomas 's story of his doubt became public knowledge. The decision of the disciples. To desert Jesus wasn't kept a secret. Aren't you glad those things were told? Wouldn't it be a bummer if we didn't know that? Paul's self-righteous murders weren't hidden. Paul, in fact, openly shared this. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13-17, through 17, you'll see that Paul says, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. Because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. And I think it's interesting, he says, I acted in ignorance and unbelief. But you go, but weren't you one of the greatest of all the Jews who were following after Jesus? And he still said he didn't know. He didn't understand the love and the mercy and kindness of God. It didn't break into his life yet. And so he goes, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world, catches to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. You see, when leaders are real and genuine and honest and authentic, it allows the rest of the people to be honest and authentic as well. I love the fact of what George Kenworthy Jr. shared last week. Many people were touched by his message. And you know why I believe they were touched? If you, if you didn't hear it, listen to it on an iPod that we, in the sermons that we have. Because he was, just, he was just outright honest. He basically said, you know what? I don't have my act together. I've had not all tens in my ministry, but ones and twos. And things haven't been quite what I would hope they would be. And people were touched by just that simple sense of honesty and humility so often in the new testament people are quite open about their past life and Paul seeks to remind them because he wants them to be humble. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 through 11. It says, you'll see it on the screen here. He says, "Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? They will not come under the rule of God." Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verse 11. And that is what some of you were. How would you like it if I started listing a bunch of things? And I said, and that's what some of you, me included, were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Colossians 3, 5 and 10. He begins and he says, put to death. Because, you know, we're not to continue to live in this. We still sin. We still have these things that God, that we once did. But now we're enlightened. We understand it. And through his Holy Spirit, he begins to help us to to root these things out of our life. That's the part of growth that we're all called to walk in. And and even the growth process is to be kept open and honest so people can feed into it. So he says, put to death there for whatever belongs to your earthly, fleshly nature, the way that you once were. Put it to death. And don't we all go, I wish it would just die. But we put it to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is adultery. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Look at verse 7. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourself of all such things as anger and rage, malice and slander or filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off the old self with its practices and put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge and in the image of the Creator. You know, when people are honest and authentic and in touch with their past life, then it is possible for God's loving, forgiveness and undeserved goodness to begin to flow. A good memory of who you were And really, who you are helps in giving that kind of undeserved goodness to other people. Remembering how you were, the undeserved patience and kindness that others extended to you helps you turn around and do the same to someone else. I remember when I was early on in my ministry and I was leading middle school students and I had to teach a middle school class uh, in in the uh, Sunday school hour. Anybody ever taught middle school students? Yes. Yes. They are the best. And that's what I wanted to tell you. Okay, But it just so happened that all the rest were wonderful. But there was one student who couldn't sit still, who kept interrupting, who listened to nothing I wanted to say. And it was so difficult. And I was getting so upset and frustrated and worked up inside. And I was angry at the student. And I really wanted to give the student everything that I could in one sense. And not good stuff. Until, this is the honest truth, I, I sensed the finger of God on my heart saying, Kevin, who do you think you are? You were that student in middle school. I was. I remember I was in seventh grade and I was sitting in a Sunday school class and I was just a terror to the teacher. And this teacher was the nicest guy in the world. He never said an unkind word. He was so patient and so kind. And and he just he would kind of redirect me and he would ignore me and all these things and I was I was a pastor's kid and I thought I could get away with anything. And I remember going on and at one point I think he became so frustrated. He turned and he looked at he kind of turned and looked at me and said, "Cut it out, funny face." Honest to God, I was just like in shock. I would have been like swearing because he was so good. And I remember as I sat there thinking to myself, who are you so self-righteous and haughty? And as you're teaching, you need to start praying and understanding how you can connect with this person. It doesn't mean you let the behavior, middle schoolers, it doesn't mean you let the behavior continue. It I know that uh, Kevin Campbell will be very thankful. I said that it does mean this. It does mean this, that each and every one of us, wherever we go, whether it be with coworkers or neighbors, or whether it be people that we live with in our house or people that we work with in the different I- arenas, it means this: that we don't approach these things self-righteously in this haughty way, as if we never were there. Right? That's why he says, I just would like it if you would walk down memory lane and remember what you once were and you weren't so good. And because of that, I ask you to give that same goodness to people around you. And then he goes on and he says, there's more to it than that. There's more than just remembering about the fact that you weren't so good. There's an even greater motive. It's a continual reminder of how good God has been to you. How you can continually remember His great kindness. Because if you look at verse 4, it says, At one time you were and you lived. And then verse 4 says, But... And that's a great word to underline. You might wonder, well, why? Because it's this idea of this intervention of God. How God steps in. He says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared... It's this beautiful picture. In fact, the same word is found in Titus chapter two, in the verses, I think, is eleven and thirteen. It's this idea that it's the sun that breaks forth on a on a morning when it just comes up over the horizon and it brings this brightness and this glow, and it just brings joy to your heart. Or it's in a cloudy day. It's been cloudy for a few days, and all of a sudden in the afternoon you have this experience where all of a sudden the clouds part and then the sun breaks through, and you haven't seen it for a few days, and you feel the warmth and you see the The light of the sun. And that's kind of the idea. But when the kindness, the love of God, like the sun, just broke into your life, you were living deceived, you were foolish, you were living disobedient, and you were living in such a way that you were enslaved to all your desires and your passions, and they were ruining your life, and you didn't even realize what it was doing to you. And then one day, God, out of His great love and kindness, broke into your life. You understood it, and you received it, and you opened yourself to that. And He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, we might be partners, having the hope of eternal life which is not just life in the future, it's a quality kind of life where you experience the goodness of God and that goodness of God so fills you up that it spills out into other people's lives every day, everywhere you go. At a certain point, maybe it was a sudden revelation or maybe it was just a gradual understanding for you. You woke up and realized that God loved you and you didn't deserve it. God was kind to you when you were being a jerk. God was patient when you were so selfishly self-absorbed. God was truthful to you when you were lying to yourself. God was good when you didn't deserve it. And if you think you do deserve it, you do not know the grace of God. People most in touch with God's grace are also those most in touch with how undeserving they are of his goodness and his grace and love. If you read Luke, Luke 7, verses 36 through verse 50, it's the story of these Pharisees who have invited Jesus to, the, to their house, to, the, to his house, a specific Pharisee. In their self righteousness and their questioning, they bring Jesus in, and as Jesus is there, a lady comes in who is a lady of the night and streets and all the rest of that stuff, and she comes in, and she begins to weep, and, and, and basically, with her hair, washes his feet, which is a, I mean, talk about. You don't do. Imagine that at a dinner table. And they're just taken back. And Jesus goes on to basically say those people who have experienced the deepest sense of their shame and understand and experience God's love, they are also the ones who love the most. And that's why when you look at what Paul has to say, Paul at one point says, I am the chief of sinners. I come to realize that how deep my sin is. It took God that much more to reach me. I remember my own life. There was a day, it was in my college years. It was the day I realized that my goodness wasn't good enough and my badness was a lot worse than I thought. There was a day I realized I grew up in a home with a father as a pastor and did all the church stuff. And as I was growing up, I didn't feel like there was a lot of bad things that I had had done. In fact, when people would ask me about being saved, I didn't feel like there was a lot to save me from. Anybody feel that way? If you do feel that way, there's not a lot to be saved from. Start asking God to to really open your spiritual eyes because I began to really question that and understand that. What does this all mean? What did you save me for? And I began to realize that my goodness was not good enough to save myself and my badness was a lot worse than I thought. For me, even though my life hadn't produced a lot of visible bad fruit, you couldn't see a lot of bad behavior necessarily, I realized one day how the same root of evil was within me And though I may not have looked bad on the outside, I saw how evil my heart was on the inside. I had a glimpse, an understanding of that. I saw the lust, the greed, the envy, the anger, the self-pity, the manipulation, the ambition, all that stuff which was hidden as seed form. In fact, I saw the seed of the sin in me was as great as the seed that blossomed in the life's of those who looked like the worst of sinners. You know, you watch those things on TV, maybe true t- true television, or or you watch these crim- crime shows, a uh, uh, with a 48 hours or those kind of things, and you look and you go, how in the world could this person have done that? Any, you ever thought that? I just remember at that time I realized that the very seed which took in a sense, root and began to blossom and come out in all these kind of despicable, bad behaviors in someone else, I began to realize, but for my environment, maybe my environment is basically kept it all underground. And I began to see what was in my heart was no different than that that person's. And I want to tell you, it is really easy for people to grow up in the church. So I'm going to speak to some people who have grown up in the church and you've you've been, quote, saved and you never come to a point where you realize, because I felt at that point in my life, I was the most saved person in the world because I was basically going down a path where it would have been very easy for me to attend and be a part of and never understand how much God needed to save me. And you may be in that place. And I'm not shaming you. If you have those questions, they're great questions. Because you may have been like I did and just said, well, I heard the word grace, but it doesn't mean a lot. What does that mean? Because when you begin to understand your own heart, and you see it as God sees it, whether it's visible to anyone else, it sets you up for what I call a but-God encounter. And it's found everywhere throughout the Bible. It's found throughout the New Testament. It's often how the grace of God works. There is always a but God experience in someone's life. Sometimes it's a night and day experience. An encounter like the Apostle Paul had. Galatians 1, verses 13 through 16. Paul says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism how intensely I persecuted the church of God and I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. But listen to this. But when God, like the Son, appeared in my life, He set me apart from first and called me by His grace and was pleased to reveal Jesus. Jesus. Sometimes it's just a gradual growing understanding, but in every case, it leads to an understanding of our need to be safe from our own sin, our own selfishness and our own pride. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through five says this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom, of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's what he said in Titus, disobedient, deceived. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Verse 4, but but because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. God stepped in. And he loved us. He was patient. He was kind. He let us do all this foolish stuff and all with the disobedience and, and allowing us and hoping that we would come to a time where we would recognize our need of him, repent and humble our, our hearts, and call out to him. And God it would appear like the sun into our lives. This first points to the directly to the greatest appearance of God's love. When in Jesus, he saved us by forgiving our sins. That's what this verse actually says. He goes on, he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out generously through Jesus Christ. Our Savior. So that having been justified by His grace. The idea is that you don't have to just live hoping and maybe thinking that God has loved you and saved you. He made it very clear. One time, the Son appeared so fully in history through Jesus Christ, who lived this life, died and rose again. And at that point in history, God was making the loudest statement to you and to me and that says that I love you. I will do anything for you. I will die on a cross for you. I love you that much. And the point's pretty simple. Jesus saved us. He, he did good to us, not because we were good and deserved it, but because God is merciful and He's a gift-giving God. I, I would love to say to every person um, who are, you're in your teens and 20s, I just want you, God is not, He is a good and gracious and gift-giving God. He loves you. It's all about His goodness and not yours. He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because he's merciful. Friends, your salvation, your eternal hope is about God, the love of God that is in his heart for you and not the love that you have in your heart for him. The reality is that once you understand that this God loves you and he saves you and takes you out of all this stuff, there is now a change in your heart and you begin to you should begin to bask in the sun of his love. And as you begin to become full of that, it should begin to start to pour itself out in love towards other people so that those people who aren't kind, who aren't good and don't do those kind of things that deserve goodness, it basically flows out goodness to them and i'm not saying that you don't have boundaries it's very clear you need boundaries some of you the way you need to love some people is not by allowing their behavior to continue you may need to speak the truth to them about that behavior in a way that's loving and kind but not in a self-righteous way as if you have never lived that way but in a way where you know and you understand but you still need to confront it and you're Your whole reason for being here, my whole reason for being here is because of what's in the heart of God for for you and for me and what He displayed on a cross 2,000 years ago when the sun shined its brightest and then you step into it by faith, by an act of your will. You say, I want this in my life. And not only do I want it in my life, I want it to appear in other people's lives. That's what He goes on to say here in in, in verse 8. He says, this whole idea that that you are to show people goodness when they ask you, why be good? And you look back at when you weren't so good, and then you look at how incredibly good God has been to you. He says in verse 8, all this is a real trustworthy message. He says, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful, may be diligent to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everybody. The Meyer paraphrase is this. This is so true, you can bank on it. Tell this to people until they get it. Keep repeating it until it moves from their heads into their heart. Christ would say it this way, Truly, truly, I say to you. Or in the King James Version, Verily, verily, I say to you. Paul merely says this. This is such a trustworthy saying. If you want to catch anything in this letter, Titus, if you want people to catch anything... In this island of Crete, this is what I want them to hear: the keystone truth. You weren't so good. God showed up at some point, showed His goodness to you. So now you go out and be careful and do as much goodness as you can to others. Stress these things, he says, so that those who have trusted in God, those who have trusted in God, it's a perfect active participle. And it is put emphatically at the very end of the sentence in order to stress not only a person's initial acceptance of the truth, the time when they received it. But the idea is that they are to have trusted not just once, but every day they wake up and they go, God, you know what? I remember how I was and I'm so grateful that you've entered in and you freed me from this. And so today, God, as I walk in this life and I remember how I have been and how what you have done for me, I am going to begin to show the same kind of thing everywhere I go. And here's the challenge. Knowing this message of God's devotion to be good to you when you didn't deserve it, go out and devote yourself to the very same kind of goodness. Just imagine being the sun appearing in the life of someone this week who is just overcast and cloudy with despair and doubt. Imagine this week in some situation, God's goodness flowing through you into a life of someone and it's like the warmth of the sun because of what you have done. Begin to start praying for someone who is in this place where they have not received the kindness and the goodness and their heart seems to be hard to begin to start praying. At some point, maybe their heart will soften and through the goodness and the patience and the kindness and the truth that is spoken, at some point their heart will be awakened. This is the message of the gospel. It's what really transformed the world years ago and, and caused Christianity to spread throughout all the world those first three, four hundred years. Listen to what one writer says back in about the year 200 A.D. He, he, he's sharing how Christians differed from their non-Christian neighbors. And he's describing a worship service. He says, in it, money gifts are received, but they are given according to people's ability. There's no compulsion. It's all voluntary. Isn't that interesting? He goes on and states, these gifts are not taken and spent on feasts and drinking bouts and eating houses, but to support and bury poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls who have no means and have no parents, and of old persons confined now to the house, And also such, too, has been given to those who have suffered shipwreck. Those are people who have hit hard times. And if there happens to be any in mines, or banished into the islands, or shut up in prisons, they are cared for by the Christians. And it is mainly the deeds of love so noble that lead many to put this brand on them. And this is the brand. This is what they're branded with, with this saying. See, they say, how they love one another. And I have to tell you guys, I'm so happy. A few weeks ago, the staff, after one of the Sunday services, on a Monday morning after our staff meeting, we made a conveyor belt line of hands. There was a whole bunch of us, and we, had, you know, we were bringing food that had been gathered by you. When um, we were bringing it, and we were loading it onto a bus. And the next day, we brought. after that, we had it all loaded onto this bus. We brought a busload of food to Interfaith Outreach where those who received the food said something similar to what they said 2,000 years ago. They went, wow, see what these followers of Jesus at Wysetta Free, see what love they have for one another and for those in this community. I was so proud. Our colleagues at Interfaith Outreach said that the close to 3,000 pounds of food collected and the close to $3,000 in cash that they received from us was one of the single greatest food drops they've received from a church. I'm so proud of you. And this is a trustworthy saying. I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Because guess what? These things are excellent and they profit everyone. And that's what God is calling us to do. I am so proud of you. There are people here who, who work at Treehouse Ministries and Timber Bay and New Life Family Services and in and, and prison ministries. I could go on and on, and I'm afraid to. Like in an acceptance speech, you know, when you start naming people and then you forget some. There's all kinds of things that you're doing. And I just urge you to, to do it more. And I urge us as a church to learn how to come together as a force to do this within our community. It will transform this area around here. And God is doing so many great things here. He's doing things through us overseas. And I praise God for it. And I just want to say, let's continue to do what He calls the people to do in Titus. But there's one other thing. It's not just what you do in ministries. It's this. Is your life becoming more like Jesus? That's the real key to all this. It's not about all the good things we can do. It's really about learning to love God and to allow His love to begin to transform who we are so that our character becomes like Jesus, so that when we're pressed and pressure comes, what comes out of us is what is like Jesus. Amen? Let's just bow our heads and prepare for communion. Father, thank You. Thank You so much for the good things You do to us every day. We don't deserve it. God, we can just look out there and we see the grass and the trees and the flowers and all the things that you have made around us. They're things; they're really symbols of your love to us. They're they're tokens of goodness that we don't deserve, and yet we just want to say, "God, may we begin to allow that same goodness to pour in and through us and make us like you, Lord Jesus." We pray. Amen.